Well, since I last stood here, the Bison have won their fifth national championship. None of us won the Powerball. And I managed to put 2,600 miles on our car. We uh, thank you for praying for us as a family. We traveled on Christmas Day to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Stopped, went down all the way to Dallas. Came back to Tulsa, came back to Fargo. We had a phenomenal trip. Uh, Really felt people praying for us. I was sharing with some people this morning, uh, as we were driving south, we started into Iowa. You could see on a radar that there was a huge snowstorm coming across. Well, as we kept driving, I kept looking at the radar and going, we're in the middle of a snowstorm. Well, for the hour and a half we were in the storm, we saw nothing. We didn't see a flake. We didn't see a raindrop. We saw nothing. And it's funny to look at a weather map and go, it's purple. I see nothing. So God was exceedingly gracious to us. And so as a part of that, I want to thank Kip Hines and Jack Hanks, who filled the pulpit in my absence. Uh, they both did a phenomenal job. If you missed it, um, you are welcome. In fact, I'd urge you, it'd be worth your time to listen to them on the church uh, podcast. You can go to the website and download them. Uh, they both did a phenomenal job filling in. Next week, we're going to be starting off a series that we've entitled Living in Hope. It'll be a study in First Peter, walking through what does it look like to literally live in the hope of Jesus Christ, uh, to recognize who he is and to walk that in our lives. We'll start that next week. But before we do, it's my intention at the beginning of every year to preach a sermon that focuses us as a church on our vision, why we exist. You might have noticed it. Some of you have been around for a while. We painted it on our wall. We leave it on your bulletin every week. So let me give it to you again. This is what we say. Calvary Church exists to build a community in Christ, to reach a community for Christ. We exist not so that we can just gather together, not just so that we could fill this room once a week, not just so that we could have little meetings keep you busy, not to give you a place to check your spiritual check boxes so that you can feel like you're accomplishing things spiritually, but we as a church exist to build a community of people in Jesus Christ who know who they are, what the Bible says about them. And they're able to live out what God says about them because we're a community in Christ. But we exist not just to be amongst ourselves, not just for ourselves, but you find that the gospel takes us, takes our lives, and shoots us out. That we're community in Christ to reach a community for Christ. That that's the end of the gospel, that God would use us to reflect his truth, to be his image bearers to the world. So this morning we're going to be looking at a text in the book of Hebrews. It's one of my favorites, by the way. So if you turn with me in Hebrews 10, we'll dig in on this text this morning. I'm going to start by reading it out loud to you. This is what it says, Hebrews 10, 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. 
And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing nearer. If you've been following Jesus for a while, if you're familiar with your Bible, you may have picked up on a couple of things as we've started reading that, that I just want to make sure is evident to all of us. First, this book, the book of Hebrews, is written to a Jewish audience, hence the name Hebrews. You'll note the distinction that uh, Paul writes his letters to an audience. A lot of the other epistles are about who is going to receive it or is about who writes it. The book of Hebrews is written to an audience. We know that. It's written to a Jewish audience. And I point that out to us this morning because the author of Hebrews, who, by the way, we don't happen to know who it is historically, even as early as Origen in 185, uh, didn't know who wrote this book. Many have made cases for Paul, Apollos, Barnabas, Luke. But the reality is we don't know. But when the author writes to a Jewish audience, he uses a lot of Jewish terms, Jewish metaphors, Jewish illustrations. That as Gentiles, we don't easily pick up on sometimes. And it's helpful for us to know that. Because when you pick up this book, if you're not as familiar with it, it's a great book to pick up a commentary or a reading guide or something to help fill in the picture for you. Because one of the incredible things that happens in the text we have this morning, you actually find that this text could be, the rest of the book actually exposits this text. It it lays into it and starts to explain the role that Jesus plays in our salvation. And it puts out, and the author paints a picture for us of Old Testament temple worship. And the reality that in the Old Testament... When men came to sacrifice to God, they were only allowed so close to him. That they would bring their sheep, they would bring their goats, they would bring their offering. And they would meet with a priest and they would express their sins to this guy. But they were not allowed in. There was a distinction that was made between who could access God and who couldn't. The veil of the temple existed to shield people like you and me from God's presence. And the Holy of Holies was absolutely off limits. And though the Jewish people knew God as their father, they had very little access to him directly. And so when the author writes Hebrews, he walks through a number of arguments about Jesus and he puts it together succinctly. So that these people will understand the difference between Judaism and Christianity. The difference between a God who is far off and a God who wants to know you personally. So let's jump in a little deeper. Verse 19 starts off this way, therefore. One seminary, they always said that when you see a therefore, you should always ask, what's a therefore, therefore? There you go, a little funny quip for you. But here the author brings to close an argument that he started six chapters ago in chapter 4. He's bringing around to summarize everything he said in the previous six chapters about the supremacy of Jesus, about his work at the cross. And I just want to give you one little snippet of difference that he gives us in Hebrews 10, 11 through 14, a handful of verses before our passage this morning. Looking back at Old Testament worship, the author writes this, And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. 
But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemy should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Now let's lean into that passage for just a moment. Because this is the distinction that becomes helpful for us. Because in the Old Testament, you would go to a a priest who repeatedly over, over, and over, and over again would give an offering for your sin. And it didn't pay for it. It didn't cover it. It didn't take it away. And I have a suspicion, as most of us look at our lives, we actually treat God this same way. That we get wrapped up in the same sins all the time. And we go to God as if this is how I'm going to live. This is where I'm at. This is where I'm going to struggle with. This is who I am. And we try to atone for those sins. We take it to him over and over again. And nothing changes. But what the author points out to us about Jesus Christ in verse 12 is when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. A single sacrifice. And that sacrifice wasn't you, and it wasn't your effort, and it wasn't your trying, and it wasn't your struggling. That sacrifice was the death of Jesus. When Christ sacrificed for all time a single sacrifice, he sat down at the right hand of God. Why? Because it was finished. It was taken care of. It was done. And for by a single offering, he's perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. What the author says to us is God's still working out in our lives. We're still being sanctified. God's still killing sin in our lives. There's still a struggle going on. He's still perfecting his image in us. But our sins were taken away by Jesus. And friends, as we walk into a new year that is such a crucial thing for us as believers in Jesus Christ to latch on to. Because there's some of us who walk with guilt for things that happened yesterday or a week ago or a month ago or 2015 or well before that. And when we lean into this reality that Jesus Christ, by a single sacrifice, paid the price for not just the sin you committed and you've confessed, but all of it. Because when you sin, every single sin you committed was before Christ died for you. Which means that even the sin you'll commit tomorrow is paid for. We don't have to struggle with the fact that we're guilty. We've been forgiven by Jesus Christ. Now, he's working out sanctification in us. The argument gets made in Romans. Should we continue on sinning? By all means, no. He's working out sanctification in us. He's perfecting his image in us. So that we'll look more like him to reflect to the world. But our sins have been taken care of. And that's part of what the author is expositing to us when he says, Therefore, brothers... And this term brothers is huge for us because it addresses a specific group of people who have believed in Jesus, who have put their faith in Jesus, who are part of God's family. Now why that becomes crucial is this means not everybody gets to claim the text. 
That if you've never believed in Jesus, you've never put your faith in Jesus, you've not stopped and said, I'm a sinner, I struggle with sin, and only the death of Jesus can cover my sin, you don't get to claim his forgiveness. What the author says is, you're my brothers, those who believed in Jesus, those who put faith in him, those who are part of God's family. So therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We have confidence. Confidence. To enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. What the author is putting before you now is, as an Old Testament Hebrew might carry a a sheep, wondering, hoping that he gets there on time, hoping that it all works out well, knowing he's given his best sheep, praying that nobody in his family sins tomorrow so he doesn't have to bring another valuable sheep back. We have confidence to approach God and not just to hand a sheep to a priest. We have confidence to approach him absolutely directly. Confidence. And why? Why? We have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. By the blood of Jesus, which the author says in chapter 9, is more than the blood of goats and bulls. He says, how much more will the blood of Christ cover us? This is our confidence. It's not our works, it's not our deeds, it's not our spiritual resumes that allow us to approach God, it is the blood of Jesus Christ. So that you, in your vilest, worst state or stage, that you, having come through a rampage of sin, have free access to the holy place of God. Where you can approach Him with great confidence. What I want you to see of the picture of the prodigal son who had given up everything, ran away from his father, told him he might as well be dead, squandered everything he had, and the father, what's the father's response? He runs to him. This is grace. This is the confidence we have to approach, G- to approach God, to approach Jesus Christ. It's the confidence we have under the old covenant. The privilege to approach God was reserved just for the priesthood, only a part of God's people. The curtain stood as a barrier. It kept people like you and me far away. But now because of the blood of Jesus, now because of the blood, the sacrifice of Jesus, all believers now have an open invitation to come into the holy place. Because of the blood of Jesus. Because of his sacrifice. Because of the one who died in my place, in your place, for my sin and yours. We can approach the holy place. And the author continues to describe it. Saying this in verse 20. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. That is his flesh. Just as the Jewish people who knew exactly what was allowed in different parts of the temple, they understood this curtain. They understood that this curtain drew a wall between them and God. They understood that it separated them. 
And they understood what it meant when the veil was split in two. And the gospel writer Matthew testifies to that to us in Matthew 27, 51, saying, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. When Jesus Christ died on a cross for us, the temple veil, which by the way was not a small piece of fabric, was an intensely large, thick piece of fabric, didn't tear from the bottom up as if a man got to it, tore from the top down as if God ripped it open himself to unleash his presence so that we could be with him, so that we could know him, so that he could be our God, we could be his people. And friends, this is a piece of theology we take for granted. The reality that because of the crucified flesh of Jesus, we have an open access, an open path to talk to God. To talk to Him literally. To talk to Him personally. And the only intercessor we need is Jesus, and His work is complete. I've illustrated this with you before. I've started from time to time with my children to help teach them about praying, is to sit down with them at, at, bed, at bedtime, to put my arm around my son and say, Pierce, because of the work of Jesus Christ, we have open access to God the Father because of what he accomplished at the cross. So you and I are invited to come openly, to walk into his throne room. And you can open up Isaiah 6 and get a picture of his throne room. You can open up Revelations, get a picture of his throne room. We have open access to walk in there. Not as humble servants. Not as an unworthy peasant. But as children of the king. Who've been invited to come. I tell my son, we're invited to be here. And we can talk to God about anything we want. He's not an unpatient father. Who looks at us and says, hurry and get to the point. He's not a a grumpy man who who only wants to hear our our wish list. And he's certainly not Santa Claus, where we sit on his knee and and give him the things we want. We have open access to to walk in and say, God, how you doing? Man, I, I like it that it's sunny outside. We can talk to God about anything. Why? Because the veil was torn open and we have access To God, through Jesus Christ. And he takes that a step further in 21. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, a high priest, more of this wording from the old Jewish worship, Jesus is the great high priest. He puts that out for us in Hebrews 4, 14 and 15, where it says this, since we have a great high priest, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, and yet without sin. So in these first three verses, what the writer of Hebrews has attempted to do is what I've attempted to do for you. He's trying to make it perfectly clear to you as a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've put your hope in him, you've trusted him, you put your faith in him, 
to understand that because of Jesus Christ, you have open access to the throne room of God. You have confidence to approach him because of the blood of Jesus. And friends, we need to know that. More than that, we need to own that. So as you begin to pray and talk to him this year, recognize that. Confess that to him. God, I can come talk to you. I can talk to you about anything I want. I can talk, I can put anything before you. I can approach you with great confidence. You don't even have to believe it. Just say it because it's true. I can approach you with great confidence because of the blood of your son. And now that I'm here, anything is on the table. Anything. So as the author puts all of this before us, this reality of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ for the atonement of your sin and mine, we can approach God with confidence. He says three things to him. He gives them three strong admonitions. Because of their relationship with God, because of who they are in Christ, because of the freedom they have to access God, he has three admonitions for them. First, he says this. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from all evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He says, let us draw near. Because of what Jesus did at the cross, let's move closer to God. It's not a shocking statement, but it's a reality we need to embrace. Because we have open access to God, because of Jesus' completed work at the cross, we can know Him. Let us draw near to Him with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Friends, because of the completed work of Jesus, if you've believed in him, the Bible is going to tell you, you have assurance in this moment. Assurance of faith. You don't have to doubt it. He won't cast you aside. He won't kick you out. Draw near because of the blood of Jesus with full assurance with our hearts sprinkled clean. That means we have no guilt. It means the blood of Jesus has covered every aspect of our lives, including our thoughts, including our conscience. We draw near to Him confidently with assurance and clean. And our bodies washed with pure water. And there's no exceptions given here. It doesn't say if you've done this. It doesn't say if you've done that. It doesn't say if you ever tried. It doesn't say if you're in the middle of. There's no exceptions given here. Let us draw near to God. Is what the author challenges us. And let us hold fast the confession of hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And if his first admonition is to draw near, his second is to hold fast. Keep believing. Keep trusting. Keep clinging. Keep looking to him. And it's really hard. 
We're broken people living in a broken world, and Satan is actively waging war against us. Seminary professor used to say that all the time. We're broken people living in a broken world, and Satan's waging war. Of course things are going to go wrong. We should never be shocked. That's why we hold fast the confession of our hope that we have open access to God through the blood of Jesus. We're going to draw near to God. We're going to hold fast this confession that it's only the blood of Christ that forgives our sin. It's only the blood of Christ that gives us hope. And these first two, the author challenges us to move to God, to cling to him, to believe him, and watch what he does. It's the third one I've always found interesting. Because immediately, the author connects the blood of Jesus covering your sin, giving you confidence to approach God with confidence and assurance to being part of a community. He reminds us that it's not just about me following Jesus. It's not just about you following Jesus. It's about us following Jesus. So that's why this third admonition is not just about this great salvation that I have. And it's not just about me moving close to God with great confidence that I can draw near to him. And it's not just about holding fast to this belief I have. The third thing he says, his third admonition, he says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, all the more as you can see the day drawing near. See, if you were to walk through the book of Hebrews, one of the interesting things you would find is there are some serious warning passages about falling away from the faith. And you know why they exist? Because people were dropping like flies. Because it's pretty easy to claim Jesus when things are going well for you. A whole lot harder when the heat gets turned up. So what the author says to these people is, man, it is awesome for you as a human to know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. To know that the blood has forgiven you. That allows you open access to the kingdom of God. To hold fast to this confession. That you'd cling to him. But you're going to get murdered if you do it by yourself. You're going to fall apart if you try to do it yourself. You're going to get torn to pieces. That's why he says, let's consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. We need to be together. We've got to stir one another up. We've got to remind each other what is good, what is right, what is holy, what is pleasing, what is lovely. It's not neglecting to meet together. Why? Friends, there's a whole lot of us that think we can do it on our own. And we're wrong. There's a whole lot of people in this world who are now teaching, preaching, writing that the church doesn't need to exist. That you can just follow Jesus in your own room. You can follow Jesus by yourself. And there's no question about the fact that faith is personal. But it's never private in the Bible. It's a function of us being together us working out our salvation together. I can't point in the number of passages that you'd look at that people always take singularly that are always written plurally. For God so loved, oh, it doesn't say Ben. It sure doesn't say Ben. For God so loved the world. You'd actually find you study salvation that there's a corporate saving that happens. 
Because God loves us. We're his body. We're his bride, the church. And we've got to be together to encourage one another. All the more as you see the day drawing near. Why? Because times are going to get harder and harder and harder. And if we don't move close to one another, if we don't get close enough to one another where we smell each other, literally, we're not going to be able to encourage one another. There are 58 one another's in the New Testament that we're challenged to commit. We're challenged to carry out. You know what happens if you want to not live together in community? You can't follow any of them. So there's like 58 commandments you're blowing. So on your chart of the things you're doing well, put minus 58 and keep trying. You can't. We're supposed to encourage one another. We're supposed to build one another up. We're supposed to carry one another's burdens. How can you do that by yourself? Sometimes carrying my own burdens is hard enough. That's why I need some other people to carry them with me. Together we can carry more. What the writer of Hebrews puts together in this passage for us is a tremendous picture of a healthy Christian body life. Where we as a group of people have a healthy understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where we know it's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about my work. It's not about my effort. It's about the blood of Jesus. And it's about us understanding that God doesn't have a favorite list. He doesn't have the high priest and then the priest and then the people. And he likes these people a lot, these people a little bit, and these people not at all. It's that we're all priests in the New Testament. That God doesn't have a standing where he sees Ben here, he sees you here, and he sees them there. Or God listens to me more, so you should, you should give me your prayer request because he'll hear me. None of this is true in the Bible. That we all have equal footing. We all have an equal calling to carry out God's mission in this world. And we carry it out together. As we step into 2016, let me challenge you with these admonitions from the author of Hebrews. That you draw near to God this year. That you take a moment and reflect. And you dedicate yourself to knowing him better in 2016. If that's reading more, awesome. If you read five minutes a day last week, maybe seven this year. You read seven last year, maybe ten. Let's try to know him better. Let's move closer to him. Let's know his heart. Let's understand. Because the more you draw close to him, the more these realities come to reality in your life. That it's only the blood of Jesus Let's hold fast. Let's believe. Let's trust. Let's keep clinging to the Lord. And let's meet together. Friends, the longer I've followed Christ, the more I'm convinced that we're able to do the second one based on our faithfulness to the first and the third. That our ability to hold fast is entirely connected to our ability to draw near and our ability to meet together. We hold fast because we draw near and we meet together. My relationship with God is both personal and communal. That's the author's point. That we'd spend time stirring one another, reminding one another what's true. 
So when the heat gets really turned up and I want to get hopeless, and did you know that happens to me sometimes? I got to have people in my life that say, no, Ben, no, God is faithful. Don't you remember when he did this? Don't you remember when he did that? Don't you remember how he carried you through that? Don't you remember how faithful he was to you on that day? I need that. And you need that. This passage highlights two realities for us. That as a church, we need to be reminded of the greatness of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the necessity of Christian community. I have a good friend who says that most sermons can be boiled down to two realities. Do good and try harder. And sadly, that's not the gospel. What the author of Hebrews makes plain to us is that believing in Jesus Christ, placing faith in him, grants you salvation. And in salvation, brothers, the veil has been torn, the holy of holies has been opened, and you and I are called to approach him with great confidence and great assurance. Draw near to him. And find a group of people to do life with. Don't give up the habit of meeting together. Find a group of people to do life with that you can process God's truth. You can process what's going on in your life so that on the good days you can carry the burdens of some other folks and on the bad days they can carry yours. And all the while we'll hold fast together clinging to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us. Father, as I read through this book of Hebrews this week, I'm reminded of the greatness of your son, Jesus. That he is a better high priest. That he brought a better covenant. When we say words like better, it doesn't just mean that there's more value. It means that That Jesus loved me enough. He loved you enough. He loved us enough to die on a cross. Because our effort wasn't amounted to enough. Our effort wasn't removing our sin. We couldn't balance the scale. So Jesus died on a cross, and his blood covers our sin. But it doesn't just atone for it. It doesn't just pay the price. Jesus actually made us children of God. It justified us. And it sanctified us. So that we could be in a right relationship with God forever. So God, I pray that as a church, we would draw near to you. That we know we have unfettered access to you and in your throne room. That there's no fear, there's no struggle, there's no sin. We can't confess to you, we can't talk to you about, we can't ask your help or advice in. There's nothing anyone in this room has ever committed or thought about committing that would remove them from your presence if they've put their trust in you. Thank you for that sweet reality, Jesus. Thank you for your sacrifice. Let us draw near to God, hold fast, and meet together to remind each other 
more and more and more as the day nears. Amen.